Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. excited to have Howard Storm with us, who is coming all the way from Kentucky, just outside of Cincinnati. I have long wanted to speak with this man. Um, I read his book, My Descent into Death, some 20 odd years ago, and I've returned to it again and again. I think his experience will, um, will really speak to a lot of aspects of recovery and especially 12-step spirituality. So with that, um, Howard, maybe just introduce yourself and um, whatever you think is relevant to the, to the audience. Yeah, um, I'd like to give a little bit of background of I, um, who I was, so that it makes more sense how I got to the place that um, I am now. I was uh, raised in a suburb of Boston, and um, my dad was a, a World War II veteran in the Navy, in the Pacific, and uh, when he came back, my mother told me many times that he was unrecognized. The war, the being in the Navy had completely changed him. He was a very, very hard man and a cruel, very cruel man, and uh, the... Uh, dysfunctional you know i know everybody in a sense has come from a dysfunctional family i don't think anybody can claim that their family was perfect and without problems but and it was exceptionally dysfunctional i mean a lot of beatings and hitting and yelling and screaming daily not occasionally and uh, so um being um me and my sisters being, you know, forced sometimes willingly and sometimes unwillingly to go to church, you know, um, ended as soon as we could, you know, when we became early teens, we just like, we didn't want to go in again. And I, I was, um, very interested in church in an early age, but as a teenager, um, realized the, uh, uh, contrast between all this love and goodness and nice stuff that we heard in church and what happened in the parking lot immediately after church with my father slugging us, I mean, hitting us and screaming at us and cussing at us because we had fidgeted or because we'd picked our nose or played with the bulletin or something like that. You know, it's like, hey, let's, what's wrong with this picture, you know? Yeah. Um, so as early teen, I became, a, um, you know, I eventually convinced myself that there was no God and I was, um, became very worldly. I was very, very wild. Um, and I don't want to go into, uh, my, <laughs> my drug a logger, dope a logger. Um, I mean, in my 14, I was doing everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Um, Went to San Francisco in 1966 because I heard that was where to go, and um, I did more. Didn't you? Yeah. 
I, I did more stuff. So um, to quote Jimi Hendrix, um, I am experienced. Um, and, you know, the, I mean, at the time, it, it was all, uh, you know, drug, sex, and rock and roll. It seemed like, um, it seemed like the way to go. And also, there was a, a belief in my generation. I was born in 46, baby boomer, that um, none of us were going to live past 30 anyways. You know, there was going to be a nuclear war or whatever. And, um, you know, life seemed completely hopeless. And so we just all turned to hedonism, which in a way is a reasonable thing to do when they're like, you know, you're going to die young and the whole world's going to be um, blown up with nuclear weapons. And uh, then went to call, uh, worked my way through college and had a family and I uh, got a career as a college teacher and stuff like that. And all my friends were atheists and we were all, um, we all drank a lot. I mean, you know, social drinking. I don't think that I was ever an alcoholic because I could control my drinking. Um, but I drank a lot, you know, I mean, we'd, we'd consume enormous amounts of liquor. Um, I stopped using um, drugs because that wasn't compatible with, I was a college professor and that just wasn't compatible with that. That's frankly too much of a risk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't want to go to jail, <laughs> you know, blow my, everything that I worked for. Um, so anyways, very um, A-type personality. I became uh, quickly the head of um, the academic department that I was in. I was very controlling, totally self-centered and lived for myself. There was one problem with this beautiful, happy American pie picture. You know, the wife and the two kids and the house in the suburbs and uh, the car and all that stuff was, um, I scared myself. Like, driving home late at night, having been drinking with my buddies all night, and it's like three, four, five o'clock in the morning, and um, I, just I just wanted to um, drive my car at 100 miles an hour into um, a bridge abutment or off a hill or something. Um, and it used to freak me out because there was part of me that really, really wanted to do that. Um, and the only way that I can explain it is sort of metaphorically like there's this huge emptiness inside of me. Um, so although if you had said to me, how you doing? I would have said, I'm great. I'm perfect. I'm fine. Screw you. You know, I mean, why would you even ask? I mean, can't you see I'm fabulous? You know, that's what I would have said. In truth, there was something very, very um, missing in my life, very, very empty in my life, and I didn't know what it was. So um, the way I like to describe it was I was trying to fill that hole in me with alcohol, with sex to the max. That was my big, big interest in life. Um, power, controlling people, um, being self-sufficient, I didn't ask people for help. Like I built my own house with my own hands with very little help, you know, stuff like that. I mean, it's just like, I can, you know, I can do anything if I want to kind of attitude, um, very self-contained, um, arrogant, you know, and consider myself basically the center of the universe and not too interested in other people, except in what they basically, um, 
served my ends, you know. And if they didn't serve my ends, I had nothing to do with it. So that's who I was. That's my that's my self portrait. Mm -hmm. And did you know there was something wrong? You say you would say to people things are great, but in your own inner monologue, did you say this is something's not right here? This is messed up. Or did you? Yeah, awareness. A a absolutely, and it was very disturbing because, like, I I was achieving everything that I thought I should be achieving. I, you know, I was like you know, the top of the game, making good money, you know, um, you know, winning awards and honors and promotions and stuff like that. And, and like, none, none of it meant anything. Yeah. And then you take a fateful, was it a class trip to Paris? Yeah. yeah I took a group of students to, um, Europe. We went all over Europe and, uh, this was a, a three week, um, art tour of Europe. I was an art professor and um, on the next to the last day before we to leave, we were in Paris and um, I had a, uh, I blew out a hole in my um, small stomach, which is called a duodenum. And uh, they, um, it knocked me right to the ground. I thought I'd been shot by a bullet. I mean, it, it's most acute pain. It just came from nowhere because what was happening was the stomach acid and stuff was leaking to my abdominal cavity. So my wife, this Just happened a lot. What caused that? Um, me, um, stomach yeah. acid, you know, uh, prob probably an ulceration that just went all the way through. But um, I mean, if I, I, if you want to blame it, I can blame it on gin. I was drinking a lot of, um, I discovered Univer Yun, um, Univer Old was a little too strong for me. That was about 160 proof. Univer Yun was about um, 110 proof, which I drank neat um, and a lot of it. Um, a lot. <laughs> you know, it kind of it uh, kept me in a good mood, you know? Um, and so, but I can't blame, I can't blame, blame the polar old gin. You know, it was me. And Coca-Cola's and popping lots of aspirins, you know, and <laughs> it's just, you know, insane, you know, I mean, crazy stuff. So I was, uh, my wife called the hotel, this is 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning, she called the hotel desk and they called an emergency service at Arctic Game, knew exactly what was wrong, told me I had to have surgery immediately or I'd die. And an ambulance came and they took me to the big um, city hospital in Paris, which is many city blocks, big, big municipal hospital. And I was taken to emergency and examined there by a couple of doctors and uh, told the same thing that if I didn't have the surgery right away, I'd be dead. Um, in case I was wondering what happens if you become so septic, uh, you know, you can't recover. So anyways, um, I was taken over to the surgical hospital because of uh, the uh, socialized medicine and the way it was set up. There was, um, I didn't know it, but there was no surgeon at the surgical hospital available. So I was never put under the care of a doctor. I was just parked in a room to wait for a surgeon to come. And in Paris, they told me my life expectancy was like an hour or two. American doctors said, yeah, that's about right. Maybe um, a few hours at the most, and then you die. Mm 
10 hours later, never having seen a doctor, never having been getting any treatment or medication, nothing, no narcotics, which I begged for. I mean, begged, for, you know, begged because the pain, which had dropped me to the ground, kicking and screaming and yelling, um, got worse and worse. It's um, um, mind-blowing pain. <laughs> I don't mean mind-blowing in a good sense. I mean, it's, you know, I couldn't think or anything. Uh, basically, what I was doing was trying to breathe. Um, that's all I was doing was trying to, because I knew that if I stopped breathing, I would die. And I didn't want to die because I knew that uh, when you died, there was nothing afterwards. I mean, I, I knew that all my friends, they were all college faculty. They all knew that. Um, and anyone that believed otherwise, we considered to be um, basically an idiot, you know, who believed in fairy tales. So um, nurse came in and said that they were unable to locate a doctor. This was at 8.30 at night and that they would try and get one the next day. Well, um, I figured that that's it. No, no, there's no more point in trying to do this anymore. Because I was trying with all my might to breathe, which basically consisted of breathe in and breathe out. The problem with breathing is it agitates your um, abdomen through your diaphragm and that um, intensified the pain every time I breathed. So um, it was really, that's, that's what I was fighting was the, um, I didn't want, I didn't want the pain, but I also wanted the breath. So anyways, so I let go and um, let myself uh, go into death. And I went unconscious. I'm, I'm going to, I want to abbreviate all this because I want to um, get to some more interesting stuff. Um, but um, I woke from it. I felt wonderful. I was standing there in the room, felt better than I ever felt in my whole life. And I thought I'd recovered, except that there were a couple problems. One was that there was um, something in the bed that I had been in that looked exactly like me. And I knew that it was meat, just meat. And that was very disturbing because how could it look like me? Because it wasn't me. I mean, because I'm standing here looking at it, you know, that's, that can't be me. And the other thing was, is that I tried to communicate with my wife and my roommate, who was a very kind Frenchman, and uh, neither of them would interact with me at all, as if I wasn't there, which made me very angry. Because I was there. I mean, I was real. And they, and they were, like, ignoring me, which made me very mad. Um, and then I heard people calling me outside the room, and so I went they told me to come with them. I thought that they were going to take me to um, a doctor, which they had implied. They didn't say that, but they implied it. And so uh, they took me on a long journey into darkness. And in that darkness, they um, turned on me and tore me apart, literally. And it hurt just like it would hurt in this world. And they did it with, um, and they were having fun. I mean, they were laughing and joking and, um, biting and clawing and tearing and, and baiting me. And um, all the while, um, this was like one of them. I um, was completely annihilated. And I heard a voice. Um, I don't know where it came from or who it was, but anyway, said, pray to God. And I thought, um, I don't believe in God. I don't pray. And the voice said, pray to God. And I thought, um, I don't know how to pray. I can't pray. And the voice said, pray to God. And I thought, okay, 
when I was a kid and went to Sunday school, we learned prison. I was trying to remember something and I was having a lot of difficulty remembering anything. I was getting it all confused with everything that I memorized in my um, school years. And I came up with a couple phrases. And when I said them, the people around me became very angry and told me there was no God. Nobody could hear me. And they were going to make things much worse for me if I didn't stop. And for the first time, I was able to give them a little payback by saying God stuff. So I started making stuff about God, which was so vulgar and crude that I would never repeat it again because it was like really, really. But I, I was threatening them with God, which I didn't believe in, by the way. Mm. Mm. But it was a wonderful tool and it drove them away from me and they um, disappeared back into the darkness. So I was left there all alone in that place. This is a really part, important part of my experience that I don't talk about much because I had an opportunity to think about my life. And in summary, what I concluded was is that um, I had failed as a son to my mother and father. We, our relationship was extremely strained. My relationship with my father was non-existent. We hated each other. Um, had very little opportunity to see my mother since my father and I, my mother lived with my father, you know, so it was a problem. Um, I had very little relationship with my sisters. I had uh, my relationship with my wife was lousy. My relationship with my kids was, you know, superficial. Um, I thought about how my students, I mean, I thought about, about my students. I mean, they're were, they were okay. You know, they're kind of fun, but basically they're kind of a pain in the ass. You know, they interfered with my greatness, you know, the demands. Went. I mean, I, I realized that in all of my relationships in the world, it was all a big nothing. But the, the biggest realization that I had was that as important and as great as I was, I came to the conclusion that I was nobody. I was, I was a, in my own imagination, a big fish in a little pond, but I was actually just a medium little fish in a little pond. <laughs> and by no means the, you know, the, the important person that I pretended or thought that I was. Um, it's very, uh, this is taking, taking me deeper and deeper into despair. And I realized that I was stuck in this place of horror and torment and um, cruelty, and there was no way out. And I absolutely felt that this is right. This is where jerks like me go. I mean, I never felt like, this is wrong. How could they do this? It was, it was just like, and I also felt that the people that attacked me had been the people just like me, my friends, my, um, they were, they were, uh, they were sort of like my brothers and sisters, you know, spiritually. Um, and that the only way I was going to make in this place was that somehow I was going to have to get my act together physically and emotionally and become better than they were. I mean, I didn't want to be a victim anymore. And the only way you could, in this place that you could cease being a victim was to be the victimizer, which is, I think, pretty much what they'd all come to the realization too. You know, it was basically it was a dog-eat-dog -dog rat pile. Um, and uh, I really didn't want to do that. And I um, couldn't think of a way out when I remembered uh, a song and the feelings that I had in that song as a little boy in Sunday school, which was... Um, Jesus loves me, this I know. Um, 
And I remembered that as a little boy, I had believed that there was this uh, superhero guy named Jesus. And when I had nightmares or when I was afraid or when I was in trouble, I used to ask him for help and he would always help me out. And I thought, maybe that's it. Maybe, that, maybe that's the way out. No idea whether that was true or not, or whether it was just a, um, delusions of a little kid, but it was the only thing I could think of. So um, I called out to him in utter desperation, which I don't know if that's the same thing as faith, but I don't think it is. <laughs> and um, he came and he took me out of there. He took me up to the outside of heaven. He called over a group of angels and we did a life review and we went over my life, which was, um, he, he, he was totally not judgmental, but I could see that my life was um, a big disappointment to both him and to the angels because what they were looking for in my life was uh, being a, a kind and loving person, which is not what I was. I was a successful person. I was a high achieving person. Mm -hmm. I was an intelligent person, but kind and loving were not things that I was interested in. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyways, he asked me if I had any questions. And I said, I got a million questions. So I asked him everything I could think of to ask him. And he answered everything very nicely. He showed me things, took me places. And uh, then he gave me the bad news that I had to come back to this world and try and uh, I was given, he was giving me a redo, um, chance to do it again. And um, when I asked him, what do you want me to do if I do go back? Because I didn't want to come back. I want to go to heaven, which he told me was not an option at that time. Um, he said, I want you to love the person that you're with. And I said, yeah, but what do you want me to do? And he said, no, that's what I want you to do is love the person you're with. And I said, yeah, but what good led to him? We had a big conversation about that because I, I just didn't see the point. What is the point of loving the person? Well, anyways, so this all happened 35 years ago and I'm still trying to figure out how to love the person that I'm with, which I'm getting a little better at, but I, I'm certainly not, um, I haven't mastered it, you know, but um, I do, that is my, uh, conscious intention in my relationships is to be as loving as possible. And that may sound simple, but it's, not, I mean, it's easy when you're with some sweet little old lady or something, that's not hard. But when, you know, when you're with someone that um, hates you and, you know, mocks you and is cool to you, it's mm -hmm. kind of interesting trying to know how to um, love them. I mean, sometimes it means putting as much distance between them and you as possible. You know, sometimes the best way to love someone is to walk away, you know, <laughs> Um, because they clearly are venting their stuff on you and like, you know, um, I don't need it, you know, um, and I can't fix them. And that's one of the things that I've learned. I can't fix anybody. Um, if someone asks me for help, I can offer my help, but I, I'm, my job is not to fix people or to change them. My job is to just love them the way they are. And so that's what I try to do. Well, that's certainly, you know, if you were talking to a mature 12-stepper, I think they would sound pretty similar. Um, although I do think if, you know, not to compare the drama of my experience, 
I certainly went through a phase where I was hell bent on fixing and saving people. Yeah. Was that, did you go through something comparable to that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's embarrassing. After my experience with Jesus and the angels and all this stuff, I got real religious. And I like, I thought I could change the world by memorizing scriptures and then like blasting people with that. So it was, this was, um, there's a formula of confrontational evangelism. And I literally drove away and turned off everybody I knew. My wife, my kids, my friends, my mother, my father, my sister. I mean, I, I drove everybody away from me because the more they showed um, displeasure with being blasted with scripture, the more I blasted them. Yeah. And I even, I even developed a term called thunder preaching. I mean, we're talking about like, this is insanity. I mean, so counterproductive. I mean, when I, when I see like a guy on a street corner, you know, like, um, you know, screaming scripture, people are, you whores, you know, you daughters of, you know, perdition, you're all going to burn. You know, I just want to go through like, man, you're turning everybody off. You're like, please don't do that. You know, um, but I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. And I, and I did that for a few months. Um, it didn't, you know, I, f I finally figured out that it was not working after a few well, months. One of the places where I, and I did laugh a few times, quite a few times in my descent into death. But when you were talking about this, this strange new Howard that came back to the world, and you're talking about, you know, this sudden interest in things spiritual and this desire to go to church. The scene where you are on crutches and you're late for the service. Yeah. And, it's, and it's a UCC church, too. And you, you see the angels basking in the hymns and you fall to your prostate yourself. That is one of my favorite things I've ever <laughs> and, you know, and And the thing is, is that... Um, the people at church have have never um, mentioned that to me. I've I've actually asked. Yeah, I, I that's my home church, and that's and that's where I go. I've I've retired, so I'm I just um, I love the people there, and uh, I've asked some people like, do you remember me doing that? And they go, yeah. And I said, didn't you think that was pretty? Because we're the frozen chosen. We're not a Pentecostal church. No. Oh, yeah. That's what I loved about it, because I've got a long history with the UCC. Yeah. Yeah. Up to a UCC seminary. Yeah. Yeah, so I was just trying to picture that. Yeah. So what was seminary like for you? Obviously, oh. you, you, it must have been informed by this experience, totally. I, I love seminary, because, um, first of all, with a bunch of people, there were, um, my class started off with 90 people. It was a Methodist seminary, um, mm -hmm. United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio. And uh, so 90 of us that began, eight, 60 finished. But anyways, so wonderful people because we're all, um, you know, interested in the same sort of stuff. So we just had wonderful conversations and friendships and things like that. And uh, overwhelming majority of people were all second career people. Um, there were very few people like in their 20s, you know. And there were people, I was in my um, early 40s, but there were other people in their 60s and stuff going to seminary. So there's a wonderful mix of people. And um, 
it didn't change my faith one bit, but it, I learned an enormous amount about how to articulate my faith. It, I learned about the history of, uh, the evolving history of uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, it was a great experience. If, I, I mean this quite seriously, if I could have just stayed in seminary for the rest of my life, that would have been heaven. I, I, I went to seminary myself, and I agree with you. I did it on the heels of my recovery experience. Yeah. Sounds very similar. Did you out yourself at seminary? About my experience? Yeah. Um, no. Because I had, I had learned that um, most people don't want to hear it, and religious people um, in particular aren't necessarily interested Mm-hmm. So I never, I never talked about it at the seminary, ever. And yet the tradition, broadly understood, is there's, there's a lot of experiences like this. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, 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 the risen, you are not the first person to encounter the risen Christ. Amen. Um, yeah, let me, let, me, let me just tell you this little anecdote. So the first church that I served as a full-time pastor, um, I talked about having um, experiences of God. I didn't talk about my experience, but I was, in my sermon I talked about like people can have experience of God. And a little old lady, like in her late 80s, came up to me and she said, Pastor, I've never told anybody about this. And then she proceeded to tell me about it. One day she was in the church alone, tidying up the pews. That was a little job. She was the woman who, you know, straightened out the hymnals and the, you know, the visitor pads and stuff like that. And um, Jesus came to her and spoke to her that he loved her. And she'd never told anyone. Mm. And she said, Pastor, I'm telling you because I don't think you're going to make fun of me because you said it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's more than okay. It's so beautiful. But if you don't want me to, I won't talk about it. I'm not going to mention it to anybody because I don't want to put you on the spot. But like, me too. I've met Jesus too, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of people out there that have had um, wonderful, mystical experiences. And I'm by no means the only one. So you were, you were an active clergy member for how long before you decided to write the book? Um, I... Uh, I started serving churches as a student pastor in um, 88. That was part, of, when I went to seminary, that was part of the requirement you had to um, be a student pastor. And so I started in 88 and I um, wrote the book in 99. And was there some sort of internal journey you had to go on to make that decision to write the book? Or did you know in your heart that that book needed to be written before you were going? Well, I, I started to write the book much earlier, like um, right, right after the experience, I started to write a book and um, I was going to these uh, meetings called um, IONS, International Association Near Death Studies, uh-huh. met at a church in Cincinnati, which was very, very helpful for me to um, be in that group. And uh, there was an old man there and he sort of became my mentor 
he was in his 90s, and, um, but I thought he was very wise. And he told me not to write a book because if I did, it would appear that I was trying to cash in on my experience. And I thought that was like, you know, a word from God. Mm -hmm. So I just put that all aside. And then in um, 99, a publisher uh, from England called me on the phone and asked me if I'd write a book. Was that Clairview? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I thought, okay, that's what God wants me to do. So, um, so I wrote the book and he published it. How did the folks, you know, from the anthroposophical world find out about you? You know? How they know there's this UCC minister who had this encounter? I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. Because, I don't know if you know this or not, you probably do. In the anthroposophical worldview, in this time, in the 20th century, they, are, they believe that this kind of encounter that you're having is going, they call it the reappearance of the Christ in the etheric or something. And they, they say it's going to happen with more and more frequency. And that's I believe that. I believe that. I haven't, I haven't, uh, that's the first time I've heard it, but I absolutely believe that. That's so interesting. That's the first time you've heard it. Yeah. So my experience is kind of funny. I have a, um, I don't have a near-death experience, but I have the experience of heroin addiction. And I also had this deep knowledge that whatever solution there was going to be to that, or conviction, I should say, it was going to be spiritual. And so I got sober and I'm seeking God desperately. So I'm going to church with my parents. I'm praying a lot and I'm reading all this spiritual literature and I'm not doing very well. In fact, I'm arguably I'm decompensating. Um, I'd get relief from prayer sometimes, but then this kind of madness would creep back in. And then I meet this old felon who takes me through the 12 steps, which nobody did the 12 steps. They just paid lip service, but this, you know, make the amends, go see the people, blah, blah, blah. And I do it and I get complete relief. And I knew enough about Christianity. I'm like, that's what's happening here. And so I go to seminary in light of that experience. And probably like you, that experience informed my seminary experience more than the other way. And I met a woman there who introduced me to some of this anthroposophical stuff. And she's the one who introduced me to your book. I'm reading that book and I'm like, you know, this is everyone in the 12 step world <laughs> needs to read this book. So I became an evangelist with your book. That <laughs> okay. um, because like you said, before, before we started, we turned on the recording. This is about, rock bottom confrontation with a certain kind of truth. Uh, Rudolf Steiner once said, the essence of Christianity is the experience of powerlessness and the release from powerlessness. Huh. That's and, good. Uh, yeah. yeah. Can I, can I, um, can I add my own? Please, please. This is you. So what, so to put it simply, what I think happened was because of the, um, dissonance in my youth, which is, you know, we're, our youth is so formative. It's more formative than we believe. I developed a suit of armor. I was really into knights 
armor and stuff like that. And so anyways, I developed a suit of armor, which was self-sufficiency, self-control. Like I never laughed. I never cried. I, I cried one time before my near-death experience when my grandfather died. I cried. I, just, I love my grandfather. And I cried. It was the only time I ever cried in my in adult life. Um, I psyched people out. I knew what they were going to say before they said it. I was in control. I, I was me. I did what I want. I was a bully. When um, I, I was six foot two, I was, I was a shot putter and discus thrower in high school, you know, like I used my uh, physical, pre- I was the strongest person I knew. Honestly, I really was. Um, and, uh, you know, as a college professor, when, when someone would um, make me mad, I would move in on them. I'd get closer and closer and closer. And you know what they did? They'd back off, back off, back off. They always caved. They always caved. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, people knew I was dangerous. And I, and I used that. So that was, that was my armor. I was steel-plated. There's only one problem with a suit of armor. Um, you can't grow. It's suffocating. It's really suffocating. And so I think what was happening was is that um, my spirit, my soul, whatever you want to call it, wanted to do more, wanted to connect with people, wanted to love, you know, wanted to be vulnerable, wanted to, wanted to be able to cry, you know, wanted to be able to laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, want to be vulnerable and I couldn't so what happened was um, I blew up you know when, when you know when I think of blowing a hole in the middle of my abdomen yeah. I mean I literally you know it was like an, an, an engine that blows a gasket mm-hmm. you know which, by the way, destroys the engine. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it can be fatal, you know. Um, and I look at that as um, a psychosomatic thing, but it's also um, psychosomatic, but also deeply spiritual thing of like hitting the bottom. But it freed me to all of a sudden to become a human being and stop trying to be... Um, I, what, I, what I was trying to be was an Ubermensch, a Nietzschean Ubermensch, um, which Frederick Nietzsche, who I think is a, um, such a sad character in philosophy, but uh, basically the idea was uh, to become a Superman beyond emotion. And the Nazis adopted a lot of Nietzsche um, in there. That's, that's theoretically what enabled them to be able to run concentration camps because, like, you don't care. You just, you know, like, watch men and women and children die. And it's like, that's fine. You know, get rid of them. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, many of them became alcoholics in the process because it's kind of hard to do that. Anyways, um, so I see it ultimately, my hitting the bottom, blowing up, is kind of the, the big bottom as a gift. And uh, I think that um, when that happened, I was suddenly able to connect with um, – what is really good and true in this world. Yeah. And it's like, you've got a depth of vulnerability, like all at once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so you become a minister and you start ministering to people. And I got this a little bit in your story, but not as much with other near death uh, narratives. 
um, a lot of people really pine to go back that it's kind of hard to make the adjustment here. They want to go back and be with you. Did you have that for a long time? Oh, I still have it. I had 35 years. I call it homesick. Um, so the problem with the problem with this world is this world could be a paradise. If we were kind and loving towards each other, this world would be a beautiful place to be. But unfortunately, there's so many people that um, they want to dominate, they want to control, they want to use, they want to abuse. It's like, it, you know, I, I, this may sound smug, but I, I just want to go around and, I mean, I don't do this, but, you know, I want to slap people and say, stop it, stop it. You want, you want to be loved. I know you do. You want, you want me to love you, and you're not letting me love you because you're acting like a complete jerk. Why don't you just cut it out, you know, and just be a real human being? I mean, you know, it, it, it's like I'm a crybaby now. I mean, I cry all the time. I mean, I cry when I see something sad, and I cry when I'm happy, and I, you know, I mean, I, I just, I, I think crying is very, very therapeutic. Um, and I, I see people doing um, bad things to each other, and it makes me sad. It makes me cry, you know? But as a Christian, you must have a sense that the, the moral arc of things is towards the good and the fullness of things. Yeah, but, yeah, I mean, 2,000 2, years of having... Um, the way, the truth, and the life being shown to us, which I see as an inclusive statement, not an exclusive statement. I mean, um, as far as um, God's concerned, I think that he loves everybody equally, um, whether they're wherever they are, wherever they're coming from, because we're all, we're all deficient and flawed human beings, and that certainly includes all the Christians, you know. Um, 2,000 years of um, being, I mean, this is the big commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. That was the big commandment. The summation of all the law, the whole, the whole shticks right there to love one another. And 2,000 years of having received that and, what, and how, how much further along are we from the Roman Empire? Well, a little bit. Mm. You know, we, we do the blood sports virtually as opposed to real. I mean, we're not all sitting around in arenas watching um, women and children being torn apart by wild animals and cheering, which is what the Romans did. Good for us, but we, we certainly see a lot of no, enough blood and gore, you know, vicariously in our um, TV and movies. But part of your vision, though, was a future that looks very different than this, yes. a future here. Yes. And it's what, what I believe um, God wants, what Jesus wants, what the universe wants, what's the whole cosmic consciousness is heading towards. And, and it's going to happen. Um, there are days when I go like, <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, but 
but um, it is going to happen and it is going to be a world of, um, of harmony and people are going to live, um, you know, in loving communities. And uh, the, the, main, the main interest of the community is children. Mm. And this was explained to me in my experience. One of the big failures of us is um, we don't take uh, raising children seriously enough, which is um, the responsibility of the whole community, not just the family, but everybody. And that um, we, when we get to that place, we're going to live in harmony with nature and we're going to be given uh, abilities, uh, amazing abilities to live in harmony with nature. And you've also, in this time, now I don't, I've watched some of the videos and read some of the things you've written since I read your book, but I, you know, I check in every year or two. And it, it's, you seem to be still having certain experiences that aren't really, they're far from conventional. <laughs> <laughs> Is, and has that been with you since this event? Like you get told where to go or someone shows up or you have a dream or is that how you've lived since then? Yeah. And, um, in a way, um, I feel like I'm, um, uh, I'm very, very blessed. Like, like, let me just tell you, tell you an example. I, I did, um, 27 trips to a Mayan village mission trips to a Mayan village in Belize, Central America, which I'm still in touch with. Matter of fact, I'm doing some stuff with them right now. Um, great people. I, lo I love Mayan people. Um, and uh, my second trip there, one of the um, most important men in that community, who was a former... Um, drug dealer. He had worked for the American Mafia um, as a, uh, there was a relay station between Columbia and the U.S. and he was um, in charge of unloading planes and um, shipping cocaine into the U.S. Um, but he'd gotten out of the business. He'd had a big conversion and gotten out of the business and actually um, miraculously managed to retire from the Mafia, which is impossible. Mm -hmm. uh, that was part of his conversion that they let him live. Anyways, he told me, he said, um, he said, I'm really worried because the word's out that you're a dead man. And I said, what are, you, what, are you, what are you talking about? And he said, they're going to kill you. And I said, why would they kill me? I'm like doing good stuff down here. You know, I'm, you know, helping people, building homes and schools and, you know, sending kids to, um, you know, high school and stuff. You know, why would they want to do that? And he said, the money that you have. And I said, how do they know about the money? And he said, everybody knows you've got money because you spend, because when I went down there, it's spend thousands of dollars doing, you know, you can't build houses and schools without money, you know, got to buy materials and things. So anyways, I mean, everybody knew I had money. They had no idea how much money. They, um, and he said, the word's out. Um, you're done. And he said, I don't, and he said, um, you're going to have to be really, really careful. And I said, and his name was Urbano. And I said, Urbano, um, I can't do that. I said, look, it's a win-win. If they kill me, I go to heaven, you know? If they don't kill me, kill me, I do the work, but I can't stop doing what I'm doing. And he said, he said, I'm really, really worried about you. I said, well, Urbano, I said, uh, God's gonna watch over me. Well, I did um, 
that was that was my second or third trip down there and i did um you know 25 more or more and nothing ever happened and i um and i wasn't careful because i mean part of my joy was sitting in a in a house with a woman or a family and talking to them about their life that was for me was the the best part of the whole time i was down there was just that one-on-one -on -one time with a family going over what what's going on you know you know is there anything we can do to help you you know blah 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 um you know building building the houses building the schools we built we built four churches and stuff like that i mean that was nice but that for me the the best part was just being in being alone in a person's house sharing their life yeah you no know? so anyways um and that may not sound too spectacular but a man who knew knew i was marked to be murdered and robbed mm -hmm. and it never it never happened i was i was never threatened down there mm -hmm. eh, god takes care of fools and i'm and i am the fool of the world <laughs> you know? And then a lot of people started reaching out to you. Not unlike, I mean, I'm an example. So you've got people reach out to you from all all Christian denominations, certainly. Oh no, no, I'm mostly. I, I have people that reach out to me from all over the world. I get emails from all over the world every day, and a lot of times they're not Christians. Um, it's a it's a really I have a really interesting life because I I'm. I mean, I, I Skype and Zoom and email with people all over the place um, about all kinds of things, Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and, you know, it's great. Is there, is there a general set of questions or concerns they bring to you or is it? <laughs> um, there's some category, I mean, I, I don't mean this to demean anybody, but the category, the categories are like people's love life. You know, they're looking for, <laughs> looking for a partner and they want advice about how to get one. People who are um, gay or lesbian or trans want to know if um, they're okay with God. And of course I'm trying to tell me, yeah, God loves you. You know, you're fine. No, no worries. Just be good to your partner. You know, <laughs> um, um, people who, have done things that they don't feel they can ever be forgiven for. Get a lot of that. Yeah. Um, and I, I try to be patient and kind with those kind of things, but it's like, come on, God can do this. God has done it. I mean, Jesus on the cross, you know, what, what more do you want? You know, like, what does he have to do to prove it that he wants to forgive us? You know, I mean, God's forgiveness is so, um, so there and all we have to do is just um, accept it, you know? Um, so, so it's, 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 it's stuff like that. And then, and then of course, there's another category of like, um, what about these uh, other worlds and other people and other you know other planets and stuff like that you know the, so. right so the forgiveness of sins it's big with the recovery community so you know in effect we do self-examination in a fourth step and then we do confession in a fifth step 
more often than not, people get tremendous relief, cathartic. But many people have, um, you know, given the addict lifestyle, they got a lot of residual shame and guilt that goes with them. And I know that you have to accept that you're accepted, forgiven, but is there something you can tell us about, you know, I'm asking an impossible question, the nature of that gesture of I'm forgiven and now I need to live into that. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I do, I've done this, I do it, and this is what I tell people to give it to God. You go to God and you tell him flat out the unvarnished truth of how you feel. And if you've got to, if you've got to cuss God out, let him have it, both barrels, unload everything inside of you about that shame and that guilt or anger or resentment or whatever it is, just blast God with it. And, you know, one of the things that's really um, sad about churches, everybody wants to be on their best behavior and like seem like they've got their stuff together. And that's why um, I've been to a lot of AA groups and Al-Anon groups and stuff like that. And I like them because there's a lot more honesty in those groups than there ever is in any kind of church group I've ever been in. I wish the church was a lot more like AA or Al-Anon um, than everybody pretending that right. everything's good. So you give, you need to do this where there's nobody around. Like um, I highly recommend empty churches as a good place to do it. But um, by, you know, by the, uh, on the beach, on, on the uh, banks of a river, um, in a forest, those are also perfectly good holy places. Any place, any place that's a sacred place is a good place to do it. Lay it all out to God. And you know what? God knows everything. God knows everything. God is consciousness, super consciousness. So God knows, like, all that stuff that you're holding inside. You give it to God. Give it to him. I mean, you literally say, can I say this? Okay, here's all my shit, God. I am dumping all my shit on you. Take it. I don't want it anymore. I'm tired of it. Is it important to voice it in specificity? Yes. Absolutely. And you know what? When you, when you give it away, when you really give it away, it's gone. It's so freeing. It's so freeing because um, all that shame and that guilt stuff is absolutely, it's like uh, the chains in, um, you know, uh, that Maury wore in a uh, Christmas carol, you know, um, just stuff that weighs you down. It's, it, it's doing you no good. It's just, it's just sinking you. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I know I fall and pray to this, you can get in this 12-step lifestyle where you're going to be the guy who does everything for everybody, but if you still got some of that going on, you're trying to make up for that by being good, it, it just wear you out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, trauma. So even in your case, you alluded to this, especially with childhood, you alluded to what I imagine was deep and, and wounding trauma at the hands of your father, which of course probably built up the armor. Um, do you feel that you were healed? That, that experience healed that trauma? 
largely, but I also, um, I had a good friend who was a psychiatrist and one day he said to me, he said, you know, you got PTSD. I'm going, you think? He goes, he said, yeah, actually you do. And he said, I've got a procedure. And we did um, REM, rapid eye movement yeah. therapy. Yeah. Wonderfully healing. And so um, I think using, um, making use of therapy, make, um, having someone that you can um, relate to and trust. I was fortunate because this guy, um, I, I trusted him to take me to some places that I would never want to go on my own, you know, we, we, in the, in the RAM stuff, which is rapid eye movement. Yeah. Going deep. Um, we went to some really scary places and, uh, and somatic, right. It's Body, right. Somatic. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really good to hear because there is a tendency in the 12 step world that if you're doing these steps, right. And you're forgiving these people, you shouldn't, you know, they, they, they minimize the trauma to hear it from somebody who's had your experience that there's still stuff that we can, there's healing that can happen post conversion is I think that's a very important message. At least yeah. to the um, I, I met my, my, my first wife dumped me. She divorced me and, uh, I was going to um, Al-Anon and I met, we did the 13th step at Al-Anon. We fell in love. I know, I know. Um, and you know what? She, the reason why I fell in love with her was um, I had seen her at meetings and never thought about her one way or another. And uh, one um, time she had a lead and it's like, I cried my heart out when she did her lead because she was the most honest broken human being I have ever heard in my whole life and spoke about it openly. She spoke about her brokenness and I was like, damn, I'm broken. I just met a woman who knows she is broken. I want to, I want to know this woman. So we started talking. There was no, no romantic thing at all. And we started talking and then we started holding hands and then we started snuggling and then we started kissing and we fell in love. And she, I told her, I mean, told her about me and I learned about her and it's like, I want to be with someone who can really be open and do the work, you know? Mm -hmm. that, okay. Flat out. The problem is people don't want to do the work, do the work, you know, and get healed. You, you know, heal that brokenness. We're all broken. Mm -hmm. I love people that know they're broken. And you know who scares me? People who don't know that or won't admit it. Yeah, I mean, I think what you described, that armor, intimacy without vulnerability is what I call it. They want to be invulnerable and they still crave some kind of intimacy and that dynamic will create really cruel people. Yeah. Um, and it looks like some people succeed in it. Yeah, they they achieve invulnerability at everyone else, including themselves, expense. Yes, and it's scary when they become leaders of our country. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Are you in contact with Christian congregations around the world? Yeah, um, 
I've, I've had the opportunity to um, go to places like China and uh, Africa and Europe and Central and South America. And recently I went to Kenya and spent um, two weeks in Kenya. And I have never met such loving, wonderful people. Um, the Kenyan pastor who invited me over there that uh, took me around, his name's uh, James Adiwo. And uh, because of this pandemic, I was supposed to go back um, this year. I really want to go. I want to go back to Kenya because I fell in love with the Kenyan people. They are so warm. And I, I, I just got to mention, because I'm old and a lot of people in Kenya don't get very old, you know, life expectancy shorter. I was revered. Uh, my name in Kenya was Papa, which means grandfather. And everywhere I went, I was treated like, you know, this esteemed grandfather figure. It was like, I like this job. This is great. You know, I'm, you know, people always concerned with my welfare and treating me so well. And they're beautiful people, gorgeous people. Um, Do they receive your experience differently than Anglo-European? More open. Yeah. They're more, way more open. Yeah. So we hear a lot about we live in a post-Christian world and the decline of that. And yet there's part of me that feels like you're getting it wrong. It's still, it's still living and moving and it's moving in ways that maybe watching TV in New York, you can't see it, but it's still alive and moving. And in fact, if anything, it might still be very young. It's still, yeah. 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 Do you agree with that? Yeah. Um, the, the, the formal church got ossified, um, meaning rigid, formal, um, uptight. And somehow, um, you know, Martin Luther ch said the church is ever in need of reform. Well, I think we're going through a huge reformation. I mean, the church is now taking the show I and mean, a lot of people are talking about house churches is the future of the church where it's just a group of like a dozen people meeting in a house once a week, you know, totally casual, you know, very little ritual. Um, no, no clergy, no, no. Particularly. One of the things that I loved about um, AA and Al-Anon was there's no leader. There's, there's, there's no professional running the group. You know, people take turns. Um, I mean, this may sound corny, but maybe maybe that's the future of the church is to be more like um, AA and Al-Anon. Maybe that, because I, I, I mean, okay, I don't want to offend anybody, but I really do think that AA and Al-Anon are the church. I mean, sorry, I really do think they are the church. So I'm saying, like, why don't we just mer merge that whole thing into the future church? Although, although I got to admit, I do like cathedrals. I, mean, I like all the bells and whistles too, you know? Yeah. I often tell people that I have, when I, especially when I go to like a musty seminary library or when I go into these old churches, I tell people that I have a deep nostalgia for something I never experienced. Huh. I feel like I'm coming home. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love yeah. that feeling. Yeah. But I, I absolutely believe that to use the Christianese, the Holy Spirit is 
every bit present and active at an AA or an Al-Anon meeting as it is in any church, sometimes more so. So what would you tell somebody trying to negotiate the waters of now with all the stress and fear and drug addiction getting worse, frankly, and uh, parents hopeless about their children's futures and this sort of thing? Um, That the choice that we all have and that I have, you have, we all have, is either to be a stranger in a strange land or to go along, to go along with the flow. Let, let the world shape you and inform you and sort of conform, conform to the expectations of the world, which is, um, it, it, it's a very uh, sort of a basic live for yourself, get what you can get, maximize your pleasure, minimize your pain. I mean, that's what our society promotes, you know, it's all, it's all about self-gratification. Or um, what uh, was promoted by, by Jesus was putting the interests of other people ahead of your own. So my gratification is trying to be of some use to other people. And what that means is by being interested in them and caring about them. And hopefully doing no harm <laughs> number one don't do harm don't say stupid things um don't do stupid things and um trying to uh um see to their interests you know in any way that i can if they want it i mean i don't try to impose this on anyone this is really really important that you don't you know i'm not trying to promote me or what i believe on people it's like I, I'm, my life is full of people that are seeking me. I don't have, I don't have to go out and find them. It's, um, you know, when, when people find out, like when, when I was at the university before I started going to seminary, after my experience, I, the foyer to my office was packed with students because the word got out. And this was not just students in my area. It's like from all over the university, they're waiting to see me because they found a faculty member who would listen to them and care about them. And you know what? There aren't many of those around. Yeah, I know. And uh, it was really funny because it's like my whole day was like all these students all wanting to have an appointment with me. I mean, I didn't know them. I'd, I'd never seen them before. They were just coming from all over. When, when people find out that you actually are a caring human being, a loving human being, a compassionate human being, um, you're attractive because it's it's a rare commodity, and that's what I mean by being a stranger in a strange land. Because <coughs> you're somehow different. And by the way, um, there's plenty of people that won't appreciate that, and they'll let you know it. Mm-hmm. You know, and tell you you're a fool, you're an idiot, you're you know, you know. Um, that's okay. That's you know, fine. You can call me anything you want. I'm sorry. Um, you know, I don't care. I don't, you know, you know, when people attack you, it's just their stuff. It has nothing to do with what you're doing. I mean, I know that I'm doing the right thing. 
you know, to the best of my ability. So being such a public figure, has your discipleship drawn out adversarial forces? Oh, yeah. Routinely? Yeah, yeah but it, um, I just don't pay much attention to it. I, I love that line from the Mad Max movie, just walk away. You know, I just like, <laughs> I just, fine, you know, call me a fraud. Call me, you know, I mean, I've been called like heads of things, you know, it's fine. That's what, that's what you want to think about me. Let's have at it. You know? Well, Reverend Storm, this has been wonderful. And I've really looked forward to this for a long, long time. Oh, great. Good to um, get to talk with you a little bit. Yeah, and I think our audience will be really appreciative. Okay. I um, I just want to say, if you guys uh, work the program, you know what? There's, I really believe that the, the program came to Bill um, from God. I think, I mean, I honestly think that he had some sort of near-death experience, you know, divine revelation, and that whole program, and subsequently developing it with the doctor and all that stuff, that um, it was guided, and it's, um, it's, it's a huge force in the world, you know, that came from the supreme being, the almighty, whatever you want to call that, you know, that and of course there is no name adequate to call it, you know, cosmic yeah. consciousness, whatever. Um, and that uh, I think it's a uh, a real instrument for um, bringing human beings up to a whole new level of being human. I sometimes think of it as an anonymous Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. I like that term too. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so very much. And we will, uh, we will be in touch. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.